The Presbyterian Church USA requires every ministry candidate to complete two year-long internships, one with a church and one in a chaplaincy. My husband and I lived in New Kensington, which is a borough on the north side of Pittsburgh, and I did my internship in downtown at that gothic stone sanctuary of the church. Every Sunday, we drove the 30 minutes to downtown, and because we had to rely on the car radio, we listened to the only thing that was on at 7.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, church services. We found one pastor who did a sermon series on Romans chapter 8 for the entire year of my internship. Romans is a book which lends itself to this kind of in-depth examination. There are approximately 345 sermons in this 14 verses we read, Paul is an intentionally dense writer who packs each word and each sentence with meaning. So with all these possibilities and all these important ideas and the wrestling with deep theological questions, it can be difficult to narrow it down to one word, one thought, one idea. We experience this phenomenon with the Bible all the time. In fact, it is one of the beauties of the Bible the way we discover new words from God each time we read it. I guess I'm asking for your indulgence and your grace. You will probably still be confused about this passage when we're done. Because this morning we're not going to talk about what happens when we die, or the process of salvation, or justification, or the role of grace and good works and the power of sin, the general resurrection, or the mechanics and processes of baptism, all of which are really rich topics for discussion and which we could spend time talking about and are vital, important concepts for the Christian walk. We'll come back to all of them. My Grandpa Glasser used to say, locks on doors keep honest people honest, which was his way of saying, if someone is bad and they have evil intent, they are going to bust through the window to get into your house. Don't worry so much about the lock. And I've been carrying that anxiety medicine for 30 years, so I've now passed it to you. You're welcome. Paul had a distrust of human instincts. For him, the core of sin was a selfish idolatry. Sin, in Paul's eyes, are not the acts we commit out of our sinful nature, but the nature itself. We are, at our core, self-centered creatures. The thing which separates us from God, the sin which needs conquering, isn't our white lie we told on Thursday, but the idea that our comfort was more important than telling the truth. Sure, telling a white lie is easier, more comfortable, but sometimes the right thing to do is to just tell the truth in a loving and kind way. No one benefits from a sustained lie, certainly not the person you're hiding the truth from. They are just going to continue on blissfully unaware that their skirt is tucked into the back of their underwear. For Paul, the moment when we give ourselves to sin is the moment we choose the lie, the selfishness, the comfort over what would benefit our brothers and sisters. Sin is, in the end, putting ourselves first, before God and before others. We all know this to be true. It's clear that everyone struggles with temptation, addiction, and distraction, or procrastination. It's not so much an individual weakness that reveals our personal inadequacies. They're universal experiences. And so baptism into death means we are no longer bound to those core human impulses. 
When we die with Christ, we die to self, and sin disappears. Grace is poured out over us and fills in all those blank spaces left behind by the pockets which used to be inside ourselves and filled up by the sin. After we are baptized and given the grace of God which goes before us, the fancy church word for that is provenient grace, provenient meaning that which goes before us, we are then able to choose the good. We are not bound by or held by our sin, our selfishness, or our put ourselves firstness. We can choose good. We can choose what is right for others over what makes us feel comfortable. It doesn't mean we will choose the good. It just means we can. And this is where Paul's tendency to exaggerate in order to make the point causes us to go off the rails a little bit. He paints the law as being the opposite of grace. But in Second Temple Rabbinical Judaism, God's grace was already an important central concept of their tradition. This is no longer a Hammurabi's code, eye for an eye, justice and might makes right kind of religion anymore. There was corruption, and there was power-hungry leadership, which gave a little too much control to their sin. But if we are honest, two doves for a year's worth of sin is not a high price to pay for grace and forgiveness. And washing in the river seven times to cleanse yourself is just not that hard. John the Baptist was running around baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. And so the Jewish people of Jesus' day did not see grace as the opposite of the law. They made it too easy to be forgiven for that to be the case. Paul goes too far in making his argument here. What he is really saying is the law is not the means of grace, the means of salvation. The law is there to constrain our worst impulses. Much like locks on doors, the Mosaic law with its forbidden foods and don't work on the Sabbath ideas were there to help train your body and your mind to remind you that sometimes what you want is not the right thing for you to do. The law are guideposts. So if it helps you in your faith to keep kosher, there's nothing prohibiting you from doing so. Paul just doesn't think it's necessary. With grace freely abundant when all people are baptized and living under God's grace, we will be free to take all the locks off the door. Grace allows us to choose the good, to do what is right in the eyes of God without needing a list of rules to live by, because as grace grows in us, we are set free and allowed to make the choices which God wants us to make, instead of the one our impulses tell us are good. Locks are on doors to keep honest men honest. All this grace sets us free language, reminds us we are responsible for our choices. There is no, the devil made me do it excuse, or look what you made me do blame game. You can't live into your sin and then expect forgiveness to wait for you at the table when you say you are sorry. Sin and its impulses have consequences, and grace doesn't free us from the long-term impact of our self-indulgent choices. Instead, we are given the grace to be able to choose the good. That's how alcoholics stop drinking and live the rest of their lives sober. It's not because the instinct to drink has disappeared. It's because God's grace gives them the opportunity to be set free from those impulses and choose the good. But choosing good takes practice. I used to think you couldn't control what came into your head. That if an impulsive negative thought or a mean criticism of someone else pops into your head, there's nothing you can do about it. 
but I don't believe that's true anymore. I think we can change our impulsive reactions just like we can control our behavior. We simply have to set ourselves up for success. We have to create an environment where God is allowed to grow inside of us, where we allow the grace of God to overcome our human impulse, where we choose the good because we know how it feels to do God's work and spread God's love. This is, in the end, the point of the law, to grow in you the grace of God so you don't need to come to the temple. It was designed to teach your brain, your body, your impulses, the boundary within which they live, the grace in which they thrive. You can teach your brain and your body new impulses. It is not an easy process, but it is in its core the decision to choose God's grace. Maybe that looks like a non-negotiable daily prayer routine. Maybe it's taping the light switch so you don't work on Sunday, even enough to turn the lights on. Maybe it's the discipline to say one kind thing about the person who you criticized moments earlier. Maybe it's the reminder to tell yourself you are enough and you don't need the makeup the influencer just told you would give you perfect skin. In that moment, you don't need to succumb to envy because God's grace reminds you of your worth. And so you change how you think about yourself. We can choose to add these disciplines into our life, these routines, these practices, which allow the grace of God to grow in us and change our impulses. We have already been forgiven by the grace of God and set free from the chains which hold us captive. Now it's time to choose the good, to let God's grace grow, to value ourselves enough to make the choice for the life-giving grace of God, which chases even our thoughts and prayers. We can, by God's grace, choose the good. <laughs>